Hello everyone! Welcome back to M's Drive-In. I'm your host Emily bringing you into the exciting world of cinema with behind the scenes facts and everything you need to know about some of the best artists in the business. Today's episode is all about the legendary collaborations between Captain Hepburn and Spencer Tracy. So I hope you all enjoy and let's get right to it. Before I get into analyzing their movies specifically, I think it's important to give you a little history of how they met and where their collaborations started. I think that their relationship really did play a huge part in the kinds of characters that they played on screen and how they were able to relate to each other. According to Katherine Hepburn's book, Me, Stories of My Life, Spencer Tracy actually had Katherine Hepburn in mind for his film Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde when they first initially met. This part ended up actually going to Ingrid Bergman, but when they met, Katherine was wearing slacks with no makeup and had pale eyes and tight skin, and Spencer was kind of keeping his eye on her. Catherine was 33 at the time, and she watched Spencer's performances in Captain's Courageous and Fury, and was mesmerized by his performances in these films. In her book, Catherine quotes, Spencer Tracy is a star of real quality. He is an actor's star. He is a people's star. His quality is clear, is direct, ask a question, get an answer. No pause, no fancy thinking, a simple answer. He speaks, he listens, he is not worthy, he is not overly emotional, he is simply and totally honest. He makes you believe what he is saying. Spencer's face was his canvas and he painted from inside out with magic. What I love about this quote is that it really reflects the way that Catherine felt about Spencer. But it also reflects how Spencer was as an actor. He simply came into the room and was present and in the moment, and that was a huge part of the attraction that Catherine had for Spencer. And from there, they learned to bounce off of each other really well and learned how to work together despite their different approaches to acting. These approaches became incredibly evident when they started working together on their first movie, Woman of the Year. Hepburn questioned everything and relied heavily on the director's guidance and discipline, while Tracy was the complete opposite. He didn't talk about the character, didn't rely on the director, and just did the scenes. He often would do his scenes in one take and find it unnecessary to do multiple takes. He always gave a great level of concentration to the part. Whereas Hepburn was very good at holding her own, but needed the guidance of the director to create an effective performance. Hepburn states in her book that she always, quote-unquote, leaped into the void, while Tracy, quote-unquote, always was watching, observing, taking in what she and the other members of the cast were doing. Despite their different approaches to the craft, they created a comfortable pattern with each other and began to challenge each other in different ways. Catherine knew right away that she found Spencer to be irresistible. They created a life together and she discovered with Spencer what I love you really means. She quotes in her book, you give because you love, which implies total devotion. She was willing to give everything for him and her love for him taught her how to be less selfish. 
They were in a position where they gave their hearts to each other, despite all the hardships that they went through in their personal lives. The first movie that they did together was Woman of the Year. This movie came out in 1942 and was written by Ring Lardner Jr. and Michael Cannon. And John Lee Mahan contributed to the screenplay as well. This movie was directed by George Stevens. In this movie, Spencer Tracy plays Sam Craig, who is a sports writer, and Katherine Hepburn plays Tess Harding, who is a political writer. They both start off on opposite sides of the tracks and become enemies, but they eventually fall in love and have to find ways to balance both of their careers. The themes of this film rely heavily on priorities. Priorities when it comes to commitment, balance, marital issues, and the possibilities of parenthood. When they first meet each other, they actually meet to apologize to one another because they both were in positions where they were basically dissing each other's careers. And Sam gets caught off guard when he ends up meeting her. He ends up noticing how beautiful she is and invites her to a baseball game. And in the scene where they're at the game together, Sam attempts to teach Tess about the game of baseball, but she has to run off for a work responsibility. So that first scene when they're first getting to know each other already ends up in a place where Sam feels conflicted. Does he stay and watch the game or does he go with Tess and be with her to get to know her a little bit more? The concept of priorities from there is evidently set from the beginning because they are already trying to dissect their careers and dissect wherever this relationship is going and you automatically see that confusion and that uncertainty from the start. When Tess gets into the cab to leave to go to this work responsibility, she gives Sam her card and says, meet me at my apartment at nine o'clock. Sam arrives with flowers thinking that him and Tess are going to be alone, but when he gets up to her apartment, he realizes that she's having this party with a bunch of political people who don't speak English because they're all from other countries. There's this one little scene where she's talking to Sam and about to introduce him to everybody at the party, and then she diverts her attention to somebody else that walks in and says, oh, sorry, Sam, I have to go. He doesn't know anybody here, which is kind of ironic because Sam doesn't know anybody at this party, and she just left him to go and talk to this other political person that came in to the party, so now Sam is literally at this party all by himself and he doesn't really know what to do or who to talk to. This is one of the more important scenes in the film because it gives the audience an idea that Tess assumes that since she invited Sam, just because he is there that automatically means that they are together, but she pays no attention to him. So by the end of that sequence, Sam leaves and you begin to find out or get the idea that he gradually gets the impression that he isn't one of Tess's priorities.
He feels that Tess constantly needs to prove something and realizes that she has other people that can do things for her that maybe he can't do for her himself. There is another scene where Tess is about to go on a plane to go to another work-related activity and Sam says, I can't quite figure you out. What are you trying to prove? Why am I here? Which is a line that clearly comes across as Sam believes that they're in a position where they are two ships passing through in the night. They are together and they're in the same space and in the same room, but they're not really present or together as a couple. Tess replies by saying, I just thought you wanted to kiss me goodbye. And they kiss. And that is really the moment where you see the sparks fly. They really do care about each other and they really want to learn more about each other. There is a certain depth of interest that they have for one another. An example of this is their date at the bar. Sam immediately wants to talk about Tess. He wants to know how she feels about being a woman of her expertise. And at one point in the scene, Sam quotes that he wants to know the story behind the story. The girl without a country and how she grew up. He really wants to know her backstory, where she was born, where she came from, how she came to be where she is today. He doesn't just want to know her as this political figure. He wants to know the real version of who she is without the politics. There is this other line in the scene where Tess says that she came home with her father. And in reference to this line, Sam replies, that wasn't when you came home. I was there the day you came home. It was in the ballpark. And that line really represents that Sam wants Tess to be with the people. He doesn't just want her to write about the people. He wants her to be present with the people. And in more of a personal manner, he wants her to be present with him. He wants to bring her into his world. From there, they begin to look at each other intensely. And you can feel the sexual tension with their eyes. And it's like this sudden burst of really looking at a person and seeing who they truly are from the inside for the first time. In the next scene, they get a cab to go back to Tess's house, and that is when Sam declares his love for her. Tess realizes that she loves him too. They both realize that they love each other and want to continue with this relationship without really knowing the kinds of commitments that they're going to have to make or what they would have to sacrifice or what they would have to give up in order to balance their careers and make this relationship work. Despite all of these unknowns, Sam is adamant that he wants to marry Tess. Once he proposes, he is under the impression that their wedding will take time to plan and they will really collaborate and communicate with each other on what they both want. But he walks into her office the next day and Tess immediately 
plans this wedding on a whim because, like always, she has another work commitment that she has to go to within the next couple of days. So she feels that the best thing for her and Sam is to get married right away. And Sam really doesn't have a say in what he wants in that matter. As an audience, we slowly see Sam start to get fed up at the fact that Tess's work seems to follow her around wherever she goes. And there is this large impression that they love and care about each other, but it's obvious that Tess doesn't know how to be a wife. She's so used to having everybody else do everything for her, she doesn't have the awareness of what it means to really make time for her husband and for her relationship. That's where the theme of balance really lies in this movie is the way that Sam is so adamant and so forthcoming about making time out for Tess and trying his best to let her know that this isn't working, but she is so oblivious to what it truly means to be in this intimate relationship because of her dedication to her work, that her dedication to her work is really all that she is focused on, and Sam gets pushed off to the side and that balance, that stability that Sam really wants out of this relationship is completely torn apart. Another theme of this film is the possibility of parenthood. Tess ends up adopting a boy from Greece without talking to Sam about the situation first because she is the chairman of the Greek council and immediately signed on to take care of this kid without really thinking about Sam's interest or without really thinking about the consequences of what it truly means to be present and take care of a child. When she first brings this situation up to Sam, he thinks that she's pregnant at first and gets really, really excited. He wants a boy, he wants kids, he wants a family with Tess. And when he finds out that she adopted this kid, she immediately brings this kid into the room. And Sam is immediately taken aback and doesn't really know how to process the fact that she had just made this really huge decision without him. I'll admit, this scene is really, really funky to watch when you see this movie for the first time. But what I love about it is that you really get to see where Sam's heart is. He's very upset with Tess, but he wants the kid, his name is Chris, he wants Chris to be taken out of the room so he doesn't see how upset Sam is, which shows where Sam's heart is. He wants what's best for the child and he cares about the child's needs enough to say, this isn't right, this child shouldn't be in a home when we're not even in a place where we can communicate well enough to provide for the child. Since Sam knows that the boy doesn't belong with them because they have no stability, he takes it upon himself to take Chris back to the orphanage. The boy wants to be there, and Tess ends up going back to the orphanage to try and bring him home, and Chris doesn't want to be there. And that is when Tess realizes that she needs to work things out with Sam. When she confronts him, Sam admits that he felt that what they had wasn't really considered a marriage. What they had was more of a patchwork of their issues. 
And that is when Tess begins to feel like she needs to conform to what Sam wants. There is another really great example of a lack of compromise in the film. Tess's mom is getting remarried and she invites both Sam and Tess to the wedding. But Sam says he can't go because of his work. So there is this other question of why should Sam drop his work responsibilities to be with Tess at this wedding, but Tess can't do the same for Sam. She's not able to drop any of her work responsibilities for him. So does that mean that Sam doesn't have to drop any of his work responsibilities for her? The ending of this film really does represent the fact that Tess realizes from going to this wedding alone how much she wants to be with Sam. She realizes that when they got married, she wasn't really hearing the words. She wasn't really understanding what it took to be a wife. And being able to go to this wedding without Sam and really hearing the vows of her mom made her realize that she wants to try again with Sam and she wants to be with him. She goes to Sam's house on the river early in the morning without him knowing and attempts to cook breakfast for him. The only thing is, is that she doesn't know how to cook. So she gets this idea that Sam only wants her to live a domestic lifestyle. And at one point in the film, Sam wakes up, comes downstairs, sees Tess trying to make breakfast, and watches her. He watches her knowing that she doesn't know what she's doing, and doesn't step in to help because he wants her to prove to herself that she can do it. At one point she breaks down and eventually says that she can't. And Sam says that he has been angry at Tess many times before, but this is the first time that he's been disappointed in her. Because he feels that she can be both. He says at one point, why can't you be Tess Harding Craig? Why can't you be able to balance both a successful career and a successful relationship? The one big line in the film is that success isn't fun unless you share it with somebody. And Sam and Tess really do learn by the end of the film how to be able to balance both their careers and their relationship. Another really great thing about the ending of this film is that you can clearly see that Sam wants Tess for all that she is, and Tess wants Sam for all that he is. And they really want to be able to make whatever they have work. And they are both able to realize where they want their priorities to lie. They both want their priorities to lie with their careers and with their relationship, and they are willing to make both work with whatever it takes. Next up is Adam's Rib. This movie came out in 1949 and was written by the actress Ruth Gordon and her husband Garson Cannon and was directed by George Cooker. This movie is about Adam Bonner, who is played by Spencer Tracy, and his wife Amanda Bonner, who is played by Katherine Hepburn, who work as opposite lawyers on the same case, which causes tension in their personal and professional lives. The themes of this movie are a competition between husband and wife of different sexes, male and female, the contempt of the law, and marital problems. The competitive themes of the film lie within the opposing sides that Adam and Amanda face when taking on this case. The case involves a woman shooting her husband. 
Adam finds the defendant guilty, and Amanda finds the defendant not guilty. Adam is in a position where he gets mad when he realizes that Amanda is taking the case because he doesn't feel that she is capable of winning the case and feels that he has a better chance of winning. Adam and Amanda compete with each other in very sexual and flirtatious ways. They often use other objects and sometimes they playfully use their hands as a way of smacking each other around in a very husband and wife kind of a manner. But at the same time, they have to figure out whether they're smacking each other around playfully in a flirtatious way or if they're using that physicality as a way to show that they're actually mad at each other for taking either side of the case. Some examples of this are when they flirt underneath the table when they're in the courtroom. And then there are certain scenes where Amanda is making fun of Adam for mispronouncing words. But there is this one scene in particular where they're both in the bedroom giving each other massages. And Amanda is hitting him around playfully, but Adam smacks her in a more aggressive manner. And Amanda gets up and says that he really meant to do that and says she doesn't want to, quote, expose herself to typical instinctive masculine brutality. Which, in a way, also shows a lot of the gender norms of the time as well. Adam is seen as this very strong lawyer who always wins the case or always finds a way to get what he wants. And having to go against his wife, he feels a little bit threatened by that. And maybe that's why he used that kind of physicality against her. And Amanda uses more of her wit and her manipulation to get back at Adam. And in that case, they have to learn to keep their professional and personal lives separate. Adam makes it very clear that he disagrees with Amanda's stance on the case. He quotes that he feels that she's shaking the law by the tail, and he hates the fact that she's not taking the case as seriously as he is because he believes in the law, he believes in what is right and what is wrong, and Amanda is there to prove that the law isn't just because of her stance. Another important theme of the film is contempt for the law. There is a scene where Adam moves out of the house because he can't stand the fact that he's in this position where he has to go against his wife and they're fighting all the time and they cannot come to an agreement. And he makes a quote saying, the law is the law, whether it's good or bad. And he uses his marriage as an example. He explains that his marriage is a contract, which is a law. And he goes on to say that he doesn't like the fact that she's quote-unquote challenging the law. He feels that Amanda doesn't understand the consequences of going against the law. And he doesn't like to think about what those consequences would look like. Adam also makes the comment that he wants a wife, not a competitor. He wants to be able to keep his personal life away from his professional life. He wants to enjoy having Amanda around as his wife rather than being in a courtroom and feeling he needs to compete against her. With that being said, there is this very old way of thinking going on in this film. There is a part of Adam that believes women shouldn't create their own thoughts 
or their own ideas and should go by a certain rule book. And there is another line in the film where he says he doesn't want a quote-unquote new woman as a wife. He wants a wife with older morals and ideas. And Amanda is bringing in more of a subjective side that may hurt his chance of winning this case. This is where you see their marital problems start to bubble up to the surface. Adam and Amanda constantly bring their personal issues into the courtroom. And while, yes, they do object to each other anytime they disagree with each other because that is their job, that is done more on a personal level because they are mad at each other at home. So they get into this really bad habit of not knowing how to separate the two, their personal and professional lives. They begin to step on each other's toes and they don't know how to separate one from the other because their lives are linked together by this one case. Another really important scene is the licorice scene. Adam goes up to Amanda's apartment with a piece of licorice candy in the shape of a gun. Amanda is up in the apartment with a friend and Adam makes out as if he's going to shoot Amanda and her friend. Adam makes the point that Amanda had said earlier that anybody is capable of attack if provoked. And Adam is basically using her logic against her because he is pretending he has this impression that he was provoked by Amanda to attack her because of this huge fight that they got into and that was the reason why Adam eventually moved out. And he eventually convinces Amanda to admit that no one has the right to go against the law. We see Amanda's perspective shift by the end of the film. She's the one that wins the case, but she says that she wishes there was a tie between the two of them. Because she understands that the law is the law. Rules are put into place for a reason. And that was the main point that Adam was trying to make to her throughout the whole entire film itself. The movie is really able to grasp the concept of what it means to either follow the law or go against the law. And to be able to put a personal relationship in the middle of that and to show the way that these two people bring their personal and professional lives together. It was done in such a witty, flirtatious, sexual kind of a way. I think it made the film reflect on the importance of taking a serious issue and adding humor to it to not so much eliminate the seriousness of the themes of the movie, but more so add a personal element where we're able to see how certain careers, certain jobs, certain hobbies, or other aspects of relationships can impact the relationship itself. And I think this movie does a really good job of tackling both a serious issue, but adding humor to it to see the best of both worlds. Next up is Desk Set. This movie came out in 1957 and was written by Phoebe and Henry Efron and was based on the play by William Marchant. This movie was directed by Walter Lang. Spencer Tracy plays Richard Sumner, who is hired to put in a computerized system at a TV network in the research department. He clashes with the head of the research department, Bunny Watson, who is played by Katherine Hepburn, but they eventually fall in love. 
The themes of this movie are relationships, gender roles, gender norms, and meaningful moments that make up relationships. Bunny and Cutler, who is played by Gig Young, start out as a couple at the beginning of the movie. Cutler often goes away for work and doesn't take Bunny with him, which causes Bunny to be in a position where she feels she needs to stay with Cutler regardless because she expects him to propose to her. So right from the start, there is this question of how does their relationship work when he seems completely absent from her life? And that's where Richard Sumner comes in and tests that theory of he is there for Bunny in ways that Cutler isn't. In order for Sumner to put this computerized system in the research department, he has to get to know Bunny. And through getting to know Bunny, he begins to challenge her knowledge. And they create these playful mind games between each other to see how far the other person will go. And they begin to be charmed by each other's wit and intelligence. There's this one scene where Bunny and Cutler are originally supposed to go on vacation. Because of Cutler's work, the vacation gets dropped and Bunny can't go. So he goes off to this work responsibility. Since Bunny is already packed, she leaves the office and Sumner helps her with their bags and they take a cab home together. They get back to Bunny's apartment, it's pouring rain out, and she invites Richard to stay for dinner. He gets out of his wet clothes because of the rain, and Bunny offers him Cutler's robe that she had wrapped as an early Christmas present. Cutler comes home as a surprise to Bunny that he didn't completely desert her, but Richard is still there. So the questions regarding these relationships are very sincere and very witty at the same time, because you have Richard and Bunny who just met, were just in a position where they were getting to know each other, and now they have to navigate this new working relationship that they have with each other. But at the same time, Bunny feels this responsibility to be with Cutler. So she's put in the middle of these two men. And as far as those two relationships dynamics working themselves out, it's a very interesting character study to look at as an audience member. Color is a character in the film that the audience doesn't really get to know as well because he is constantly coming in and out of Bunny's life and we never really know where their relationship is going. Whereas Bunny's relationship with Sumner is very ingrained in the everyday life of her job at this research department. There's this one scene in the film where it's Christmas time and they are holding a Christmas party in the research department. And Richard and Bunny are on the second floor of the department just chatting about their lives and their relationships. And you can see that they are both showing a sudden interest in what each other is doing. And we watch this interest gradually unfold and you begin to kind of put the pieces together as an audience member where you say, hey, maybe these two really do have a shot of being a couple in the future. And at one point, they both talk about letters. And Richard says to Bunny, I bet you write wonderful letters. And he says it in such a sincere way that you would never believe that Cutler would say that to Bunny. So there's this sincerity between Richard and Bunny that really 
is in the forefront of what catapults the movie into a lot of these climactic scenes, whereas Cuddler is rarely in the picture at all. And those types of relationships and those types of dynamics that we see combat each other is what makes the movie as witty and as humorous and as fun as it is. Another really important theme of the movie is gender roles and gender norms. Bunny is the head of the research department and works with mostly women. And all of the women in this department answer the phones, give the information, and more so quote-unquote educate people, which is really what women of the time were doing. This movie came out in the 50s and women were expected to be housewives and teachers and paved the way for other people in their social circles. Which is why when Richard brings in the possibility of this new computerized system called Emirac to do the job for Bunny and her friends, there is this question of what will happen to us if we can't do this job because this is what is expected of us. Will the women lose their jobs? What will they be quote-unquote good for if they can't answer phones or if they can't help people? This creates a whole debacle of whether or not people in this department will lose their jobs, how will Emirac take over the department, what will the women be useful for if this computerized system takes over their jobs, and then Richard comes in and reminds the woman that Emirac is there to help them rather than replace them. So he is kind of this mediator of appreciating the woman and appreciating the work that they do, which adds more value to the work that they are able to achieve. Sumner doesn't necessarily come in and shut down the ideas of gender norms and gender roles. He rather keeps those in place but reminds the women that those roles are important, which is a really humble way of letting the women know that their work is important. And coming from a generation where women are taught that their ideas or their values or their opinions aren't worth much, Sumner debunks that theory and says, you are important to this department. I think that mentality is what makes Bunny and Richard so strong as a couple, is that they're both able to recognize the important work that they both are able to do for the same cause. That is where the meaningful side of their relationship really hits home. Sumner eventually falls in love with Bunny as we know, but he also is aware that Cutler can't give Bunny everything because of his frequent absences, and Sumner is able to be in a position where he can give Bunny what she wants and they really do come to a consensus that they love each other and care about each other and want to be together because they understand how each other works as far as their brains and their smarts and their wit. What Bunny originally saw as Richard's obsession with Emirac really wasn't an obsession at all. He proves to her that Emirac doesn't mean anything to him in comparison to his love for her, and he literally goes out of his way to let the computer self-destruct to prove his point. So they really are in a position where they're able to rely on each other for their knowledge and their smarts, but still have a personal, intimate connection with each other, which is what I love about the film. The film really does represent 
the importance of honoring the role of a woman, honoring the smarts of a woman, honoring the intelligence of what a man and a woman can bring to the table. Moving on to some fun facts. For Woman of the Year, Catherine Hepburn would serve Spencer Tracy strong tea and encourage him to paint in between scenes to help curb his heavy drinking. During the scene in the bar when Sam and Tess are having their first date, Hepburn was so nervous that she actually spilled her drink while filming the scene. Spencer Tracy handed her a handkerchief and kept going with the scene while Hepburn cleaned up the spill. She tried to throw him off by going under the table to clean up the drink, but Spencer Tracy stayed in character the whole time. Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy would share their lunch breaks together in the dressing room, which became a habit they would continue throughout their time at MGM, even when they weren't working together. Catherine Hepburn speaks six different languages in the film. English, French, Spanish, Russian, German, and Greek. This was also the first of nine films that Hepburn and Tracy had made together. Some fun facts for Adam's Rib. Judy Holliday plays the woman that shoots her husband in the movie. And during her monologue scene with Katherine Hepburn, she could be seen trembling because she was so nervous about acting alongside Hepburn herself. Ruth Gordon and Garson Cannon wrote the script for the movie Pat and Mike, which also features Katherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy, both movies being directed by George Cougar, and both movies gave Gordon and Cannon Oscar nominations for Best Screenplay. Katherine Hepburn took it upon herself to help boost Judy Holliday's image in the movie. She leaked stories to the gossip columns saying that her performance in this film was so good she had stolen the spotlight from Hepburn and Tracy. Hepburn told this to Columbia Pictures chief Harry Cohen, which helped Holiday get the part in the 1950 film Born Yesterday. Katherine Hepburn asked Cole Porter herself to write the iconic song in the film Farewell Amanda. Some fun facts for the film Desk Set. The scene where Sumner is leaving Bunny's apartment right after they have dinner together was improvised. Spencer Tracy puts on his shoes that got ruined by the rain and pulls his hat down over his ears, making Hepburn laugh hysterically. And Catherine ends up laughing so hard that she actually falls out of her chair, making this scene my favorite in the film. The scene where Bunny Watson gives Richard Sumner a scarf for Christmas represents an inside joke. Bunny says the scarf shows off his colors. Those colors of the scarf are red and light blue, which are the colors of Ripon, which is the college that Spencer Tracy attended in real life. The computerized system EMERAC stands for Electromagnetic Memory and Research Arithmetical Calculator. The cast features three Oscar winners, Spencer Tracy, Katherine Hepburn, and Gig Young, and one Oscar nominee, Joan Blondell. Some movie recommendations of the week. I've been continuing my mini Judy Garland marathon with Meet Me in St. Louis for Me and My Gal and Listen Darling. Meet Me in St. Louis is a full-on family musical. It is about the changes that people go through as a family and having to adjust to a new life when things feel uncertain but always coming back around to the people that care about you in the end, which is why I really, really love this film. It has the iconic number that Judy sings. 
have yourself a merry little Christmas at the end of the film, which is probably the most well-known number in the film and one of Judy's most well-known songs. For Me and My Gal was another really great Judy Garland movie I watched. It was the first movie that her and Gene Kelly did together, and it was the very first movie that Gene Kelly had ever starred in, and it pleasantly surprised me. I was not expecting the movie to be so emotionally engaging, and yet I found myself being mad at the characters one minute and rooting for them the next, and it's just an overall really great love story, and it's about the passion of a couple, the passion of their craft as artists, and it's just such a beautiful, beautiful film. For me and my gal, go check it out. It's incredible. The last Judy Garland movie I watched for the week is Listen, Darling. This was a film that Judy did with Freddie Bartholomew, who played Harvey in Spencer Tracy's film Captain's Courageous. And they're very fantastic together. They bounce off of each other very well and have a very witty, playful kind of a personality. And it's just another really fun, family-friendly film. So top three Judy Garland recommendations of the week. Meet Me in St. Louis for Me and My Gal and Listen Darling. As our time together comes to an end, I just want to thank everyone for listening in at M's Drive-In. I'm your host, Emily, bringing you into the exciting world of cinema with behind-the-scenes facts and everything you need to know about some of the best artists in the business. Stay tuned because next week's episode is all about the different dynamics shown in the films of George Cougar and George Stevens.